that backlash that we often find ourselves on the receiving end of, it is a sign that we are winning. Welcome to Little Revolutions, brought to you by Frida. This is a series of conversations about the double standards, societal problems, and systemic injustices that feel bigger than any one of us. Every week, we talk to someone who's questioning the norms and rewriting the script. They're activists and politicians, artists and athletes, and many, many more. Each one of our guests talks us through relatable little revolutions they're making in their own lives and the ways in which we can all be changemakers, whoever we are. On today's episode, we speak to Mandu Reid, the leader of the Women's Equality Party in the UK. I haven't been able to stop thinking about our conversation. We talk to her about how to own your power, even when you're underestimated, and how to remain hopeful in these bleak times. We don't like to define anyone, so how do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Mandu Reid. I am um, the leader of the Women's Equality Party here in the UK. Um, we're the UK's first and only feminist political party. We're seven years old, so we're still fresh. We're still new kids on the block, you could say. And I am the first person of colour to lead a national political party in British history. I want to ask, this was not something I thought I would ask you, but since you said it, how do you define a feminist political party? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think all political parties should be feminist political parties, but the stark reality is they're not. So what differentiates us from them is that we are determined to prioritize um, the kind of policies, the type of initiatives that would take us to a world where men and women are truly equal citizens. Um, the inequality that exists between men and women has persisted through the ages. Um, it causes huge damage in lots of different ways. It stifles the potential of entire countries and communities and economies, yet you rarely see um, a focus on addressing that problem centered in any mainstream political um, projects or political parties anywhere in the world. That's what makes us different. Are there any other parties that are like this where it's centered on gender equality and women's equality. It won't surprise you a great deal to note that um, there's a couple in Scandinavia. Um, there was a uh, women's coalition, which was effectively a political party in Northern Ireland, um, which has since disbanded, but it played a pivotal and unsung role in driving the peace process that um, was brokered after years and years and years of fighting and trouble. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it says something that they're low key, that the contributions women party, women's parties have made aren't really championed, aren't really trumpeted, aren't really shouted loudly and widely known about. And their existence isn't shouted about either. No, not yeah. at all. Not at all. There aren't many. There aren't yeah. many. The truth is there aren't many. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to talk to you personally mm. was because I've grown up around the world, I've moved around a lot. Yeah. And I have never felt like I belong in political conversation anywhere, even mm -hmm. though I'm a very politically engaged person. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a big believer in communities should be represented by the people who belong to their communities, right? And even in that, like, in thinking about the ways in which I can use my own voice, and I, I have a platform here, but even thinking of the ways I can use my own voice, I always hesitate because I'm like, I'm, I don't belong enough. And this has for me been true everywhere. And part of what I find so inspiring looking mm -hmm. to you is you have lived in different countries, right? Yeah. You come yeah. from 
a very global background. You grew up in apartheid era, Southern Africa. You are, as you said, the first person of color to lead a major political party mm-hmm. in the UK. You're the first woman of color who became political party leader in your 30s like there's so much there where i'm like yes finally like someone who gives me permission to to exist in these spaces because you're there and i'm curious about what your journey into politics was like yeah i mean it was in some ways accidental but in some ways you know when i look back and i zoom out it kind of makes sense that i've ended up where i am um you mentioned i grew up in the twilight years of apartheid south africa not actually in south africa but in swaziland what used to be called swaziland now called eswatini next door so in a way like you i kind of was a political person my mother is a black woman my father's a white man so the existence of our family was politically significant but for me um i was a late developer when it came to feminism I was much more aware and preoccupied with the need to push for racial equality. Obviously, right? That's what was in front of me. That was what was unfolding in my formative years. Um and let's fast forward to when I moved to this country here in the UK. Um I came here when I was 16 and um I studied uh subjects that were sort of pol- politically adjacent but more as just out of interest right and then my sort of political involvement began in 2010 we elected the coalition government here we had just had the financial crash i knew what they were going to do they were going to slash and burn the state public services that people from marginalized communities relied on I knew what they were going to do and I thought I want to be part of like resisting that so I joined the Labour Party I, where I live in southeast London is like bright scarlet red you know very labor area it's a very multicultural area high proportion of immigrants quite a low income area too and I found it really weird to be honest being in the Labour Party in that context because the people who were my fellow like activists and campaigners locally were really removed from the more marginalized people it was there's a huge concentration of at that time this is 2010 largely male largely middle class largely white people who dominated the political scene locally and i thought hang on a minute this is like not what i expected and i found myself like you've just described thinking hmm maybe i actually don't belong even though i know what i believe is right and why i want to get involved politically um you know it was always we were at the time there was a sense of talking about those poor brown or black people rather than having anything sort of really meaningful to do with them and it was because in that area it was always going to turn out a labor candidate they so there was a complacency they didn't need to engage and because they didn't need to engage they didn't do it so it put me off right and so this is why i say it's a bit accidental i've ended up where i am because i left the party and thought there are other ways i can make a meaningful contribution to the world perhaps politics in this context in this country at this time isn't for me because it doesn't see me i was seen as a weirdo for wanting to kind of like prioritize um issues around equality in 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 my area it has some of the highest rates of domestic abuse nobody was interested in talking about that at the time no 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 that's not part of the agenda what was the thing that they wanted to talk about the most well you know just quite a sort of bland program of 
broadly progressive left-leaning ideas i'm cool with those ideas like i'm not i wasn't rebelling against the um kind of political leaning that they had but what i found frustrating was there were a whole lot of issues it's changed by the way my local labor party's not the same as it was in 2010 but i'm talking about when i was involved but it, it just there was a there was a sense of those issues aren't political priorities and so i thought all right then um i want to put my energy into things i believe in things that matter to me things that represent perhaps my experience my concerns and it just didn't feel like i could do that there so i left and i vowed never again i was like i'm not going to join a political party i'll vote because i'm diligent about my voting but i will put my energy into other things then the women's equality party came along and i thought that's an interesting idea i like the sound of that and i got involved locally and they were badgering me a bit to join and i was like no 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 i'm i, I you have my support but I'm not joining another political party ever again. Um, <laughs> and so this is where the story starts to kind of really take a turn to, uh, it really connects my personal life with the political journey I've been on. Because when I dug a little bit deeper into what the women's equality was offering and campaigning for and championing, I realized that number one, I hadn't seen anything like that anywhere else. Number two, the substance of the policies and the program and the manifesto really, if it really would have made a difference to my life. And the, the story I've told before is when I was 33, I got pregnant accidentally and I wasn't in a proper relationship with a man and he was quite a bit younger than me. Um, and we were figuring out what we we're gonna do about this. I feel a bit embarrassed to say, right? I'm leader of a feminist political party, but at the time I couldn't imagine, and neither could he, a situation where I wouldn't be the main or sole caregiver of the child. Um, even though, you know, he was earlier on in his career, had a lower paying job. In fact, he was finishing, you know, uh, uh, graduate studies, et cetera, et cetera. The point I make, I make that point because normally the excuse that's given for why women do the lioness's share of the caregiving is the men earn more. It doesn't make sense economically for the family. In my case, no, that wasn't the case, but still we couldn't uh, see an alternative scenario. It was going to be on me or, you know, and it, he's, he's, he's a parent too, you know, but the, he, there was no sense that he would take responsibility. I couldn't even imagine it. And then um, I did all the maths. I looked at the parental leave that would be available. I looked at the costs of childcare in this country. Um, we weren't in a relationship, so I was effectively going to be a single mom. I looked at what my plans and prospects and intentions were for my life. I couldn't make it work. Like there was no way I would have been able to carry on with my work, my activism, my campaigning um, as a single mum in that context. I wouldn't, couldn't make the sums add up. I couldn't make it add up from a like mental health perspective. So I had a termination and I've always wanted to become a mother, by the way. But what I realized, this is where I really connected the dots. And a lot of women have this in politics and elsewhere. You have this aha moment. If the Women's Equality Party policies around equal parenting and caregiving, free universal childcare, if they were the law of the land, I could have made a different choice in that situation. And we probably would have had a different sense between us, me and this guy, of 
um, whose responsibility it would be to do the kind of main heavy lifting when it comes to the caring. Say more about that, the, the policy side. In your mind, would it impact your ability to be the primary caregiver? Would it have changed the conversation? So it's many different things. How so? On a purely kind of like making the sums add up, um, one of our policies is free universal childcare from the end of parental leave up to age five. Good quality childcare. And crucially, by the way, the workers in the childcare sector who are overwhelmingly women, under our policy, they would be on a par with primary school teachers. They'd be paid well, they'd have good career progression, etc., etc. There's all of that. So number one, I would have been able to afford um, to continue with my career as I intended whilst um, looking after my child um, because there would have been the support there to make that possible. But then I always do think like big picture. So if you zoom out and imagine that policy implemented today, imagine the impact it would have 20 years from now, the whole psychology around who does what would shift in a generation if you implement that policy because more men would be able with the shared parental leave part of our policy to take time off. In Sweden, they've had that policy for over 20 years and now it is so much more normal for men to take extended periods of parental leave when they have small children. So it's created a culture in that community, in that country, whereby it's normalized, it's not stigmatized for men to do it. And you see, in our situation, it was stigmatized, it was not normalized, we couldn't even imagine um, a scenario where that would happen. So it's, it's quite profound, it's about the economics, but it's also about the cultural norms. And so I had a real epiphany in that moment, and I realized, that representation is important in politics, of course. you got to see yourself there to feel like you belong, you can be part of it. But you also have to change the system. And the kind of policies we were offering fundamentally pledge to change the system, which means you're not a woman, right, in politics struggling against the tide. You're a woman in politics and the system supports you to be there. It doesn't work against you. So there's, there's so many layers to it. It's interesting, this is like systemic change is something we think about a lot, talk yeah. about a lot, which also is the cultural conversation right now, because that's what we need, right? It's, mm -hmm. And then there's the reality that whatever amount of power any of us have, we're just individuals within broken systems, right? And yeah. You obviously have more power than most of us do in the, in the political sphere, but I'm curious about how those broken systems impact even your day to day. Right, the broken systems within politics as well, where you are a woman in a predominantly male-dominated field, right? As you said, even in 2010, the people around you, local campaign level, weren't talking about the things that impacted people around you. Right now, or in recent years, politics hasn't included voices like yours, which, mm -hmm. which need to be there. And I'm curious just about like the day-to-day, -day, like, are you in meetings where people are, are not listening to you? Are you being talked over? Like, how do, what does that actually look like? Yeah, um, it's it's very familiar to be in a situation where, number one, I'm severely outnumbered or I've been included um, and my inclusion is a little bit tokenistic. I'm there to sort of, you know, make sure that the diversity box is ticked. Uh, but one thing I want to say before, I will talk more about this, but I want to challenge what you said about um, I perhaps have more power 
you know, comparing me to you. You're in media. So I'm saying to most of our yes, listeners. Yes, to right? listeners. Yeah. yeah, no, but I think I think it's a really interesting point because um, the media has a massively important role in shaping our political discourse, in establishing our social and cultural norms, in amplifying, normalizing um, certain uh, un sung perspectives and points of view etc etc and that's why one of one of our goals we've got seven core goals is equal media and that is about just changing the narratives that shape our lives um but back to the point around what it feels like um yeah a lot of the time i do feel like i have to put in extra effort to be taken seriously a lot of the time I feel under huge pressure. I feel like, um, and I call it fear pressure. You know, there's peer pressure, but I call the experience I have fear pressure. And fear pressure is something you experience, or at least I experience, when um, the stakes feel high and the margin for error feels small. And when you are um, a bit of a novelty, when you are the first one, or the only one, or one of the few, actually, your scope to make mistakes feels much more constrained. The stakes feel a lot higher because um, you're often put in a position where you're supposedly representing everybody from your demographic group, which is impossible. Um, you know, the white men who we see in abundance across our media, within our politics as business leaders, nobody says they are representing white men, um, except but someone like me is supposedly the voice of um, women of color in certain contexts. I'm bisexual as well. Sometimes I'm supposed to be the voice of the queer community in, in certain contexts. And can you see the pressure that kind of like lays on you? Um, it's unrealistic, it doesn't make sense, and it can inhibit your freedom and your confidence and your license to just speak out because you, um, you can get into this mindset of, believing that nonsense, that you are there to represent the entirety of all the other people. And what I've had to do is unlearn that. And I've had to, and I don't always succeed, but I've been working on it over the last few years to kind of release myself from that pressure. Uh, because, and when I managed to, when I started, I haven't completed that process, but when I started feeling that I'd shifted a little bit, I, I was able to be weirdly, like more fluent, I was able to, um, you know, push back and take the risk sometimes of challenging, calling things out in ways that I felt very, very much more inhibited from doing in the early days when you thought one step out of line and then all the other women of color have been thrown under the bus because I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it, I sometimes try and imagine what the world would be like if, there were more barriers to mediocre white men to progressing. Um, and if it was more normalized for, uh, you know, mediocre, let's say, women of color or women from other marginalized groups to sort of take up space and have their say, it would equalize things pretty quickly, you know. Was there like a turning point for you or a moment where you were like, no, actually, you know, I represent Mimando and I represent the Women's Equality Party and I represent what we stand for and not 
all women of color, all queer people, all women, like all marginalized identities, like did something happen or was there a conversation you were in? Oh my gosh, that is an excellent question. I don't recall off the top of my head a singular epiphany moment. I think it was more um, learning to trust myself because what used to happen, right, in the early days, I don't know, I'm just going to be honest, but, you know, sometimes in, in politics there's this, certainly in this country, there's this thing of, like, politicians have to put on a front. And by the way, when I signed up, you know, when I was, like, uh, confirmed to do this role or when it was questionable about whether I should put myself forward and go ahead with it, I made myself a promise that I wouldn't wear the fancy dress of a politician. Uh, because I didn't want to um, look back and feel like I had betrayed who I am just to fit into the mold. Um, anyhow, in the early days, a big part of almost any politician's job is press, is media, right? And I used to feel that fear pressure so acutely every time I had an interview with a journalist, an interview on TV, an interview on the radio, whatever it would be. And I was constantly afraid that I was going to mess it up. And I haven't messed it up badly yet. I've occasionally, you know, said something, maybe just got a like, figure backwards and, and said something ever so slightly inaccurate. But I was terrified because I've seen other politicians. You've seen, you know, Diane Abbott, the first black woman ever to be elected to parliament here. She has no latitude to have a bad day or an off day. If she does, she gets effectively, this is no exaggeration, crucified in the press itself on social media. And that was my example. And I was so scared that that would happen um, to the same degree to me. And I'm still scared that it could happen. But, what, but gradually, I, I accepted the fact that I'm a human being and if I make a mistake, it's, it, it doesn't mean that I'm no longer a person of merit. It doesn't mean I don't have value anymore. But it took a few experiences of not making a catastrophic error and also learning and seeing. And I, I don't mean to be disparaging, but like, I, you know, sometimes do panels with like other uh, commentators or politicians, um, lots of like men who've been well established in those fields. And I was always afraid initially that perhaps I don't measure up, perhaps I don't measure up. And I'd feel, I, I discovered, I think Michelle Obama said something along similar lines. She's like, you go into these meeting rooms and these spaces and you, what you'll quickly realize is that, um, you really do measure up and you possibly measure over because with a background like mine, you're sort of, you've probably done more preparation, put more legwork in. I'd, I'd often find some of these guys super unprepared, super nonchalant, super entitled to the positions and status they occupy. And I learned that, wow, I guess because I don't feel that way, I put more energy and more effort and more diligence in, and that counts for something. So it was a gradual like process. I'm not going to lie, a year, 18 months, it took me to start to settle into thinking, you know what, I do have something to say. And I am as conscientious or more so than half these other people who were handed this on a plate. Right. And so, 
when you start to believe that, the whole psychology around doing these things, uh, for me anyway, when I start to believe that, it began to shift. Did you ever have that moment where you were more prepared than most other people, which I completely get that because I've been in similar rooms where I've been convinced, right, that, well, everyone else came in with 10, like 10 minutes of prep and I've spent like five hours <laughs> reading everything I could, making sure that I don't make the mistake. I've often been like starting out in big newsrooms. I was often the, all the, all the tick boxes I could fit in a piece of paper, basically around like lots of middle-aged white men, right? Like, yeah. okay. And the thing that I often worried about, and I heard from a lot of other young women like me, young women of color like me was, well, how do I know that I'm saying the right things if no one else is saying them too, right? Like if, if the way that I participate in this conversation is just so different because I represent a different perspective and how do I know that what I'm saying is just as valid, that it belongs there, that I'm not wrong because the other people in the room might say, actually, what you're saying doesn't, doesn't make sense or it's not interesting. Or as you said, your experience when you first joined the Labour Party, right? Like no one else was talking about the things you were talking about. And how did you get from that place to the place of like, okay, what I'm saying does matter. What, what, what were you holding on to? Were there other people supporting you in the room? Was it just the fact that you had all these women behind you who you knew you were representing their needs and voicing what, what they advocating for them? Like, what was it for you? I think it's a combination of things for me. Um, definitely, like it's a double-edged sword, right? Representing, because, okay, I'm the leader of a political party. We've got 60,000 members and supporters all across the country. So in some ways you feel strengthened by that fact. In other ways, the fear pressure kicks yeah. in because no one else is, um, no one else is like definitely in an uncompromising way going to champion the issues I'm going to champion. So there's a little bit, there's, there's a double-edged sword there. Um, but then... I am a very curious person by nature and I've found it really satisfying from since I was a child um, looking at issues from different vantage points. Um, I've found even when I was in school that I would often do well and do best when I challenged and explored and was proactive about seeking out different ways of analyzing and making sense of a problem. Um, and I think we do have a bit of an issue in politics at the moment, you know, it's so polarized right now and people kind of um, go off into their purity spirals because, and I, I, a part of me understands why they do that. It's a comfort zone, but I think that you strip away the richness of what it means to be a human being when you confine yourself to just one narrow perspective or one narrow point of view. So what I began to understand is that it's actually a really good thing. It is a gift that I'm offering in any context where it's quite a homogenous group of people and they can't or don't have an instinct to see things from, from another perspective. I am actually improving this group's ability to problem solve in a way that's going, that is more likely to uh, yield sophisticated, successful results. And there's data out there which just shows us that diverse teams make uh, better, um, deliver better projects, have better results, if you care about the bottom line, they tend to, you know, they tend to yield 
much better shareholder, you know, uh, uh, outcomes. And so you, when you sort of learn that, you realize that actually what you've got is more of a superpower than a hindrance. It's hard though, because we are conditioned um, to believe in a world where in a male supremacist, white supremacist world, we are conditioned to believe that um, our perspectives aren't as valuable. So you do have to unlearn some of that stuff to truly be able to throw your perspectives in the mix. But um, I think when you, when, you, when you treat it as, it's like almost like a Santa Claus thing. I've, I've got a gift for you because I got another way of looking at this. Yeah. And I think when you frame your contributions that might deviate from the norm um, in that way, it can encourage you, you know, to feel like what you've got to offer is valuable. And sure, there's always that thing of your great idea not being accredited or attributed to you and being stolen or uh, uh, plagiarized by somebody who is taken more seriously. That is deeply frustrating. That's not going to change overnight, that dynamic. But it doesn't mean your idea shouldn't be put into the mix, no question. I, I read something that you said once, which I really loved about how being part of the conversation just changes it when you were asked about the Women's Equality Party not having any seats in Parliament and how you kept change the tenor yeah in this country this feels like on an individual level as well right hundred percent yeah hundred percent i mean that is the model we um when 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 we contest an election it forces all the other parties to talk about things that don't come naturally to them um and that's so powerful it is it is immensely powerful it's quite subversive as well like you don't you don't even have to play politics by those old rules of the only way to meaningfully take part is to win the maximum number of votes or seats or whatever. Nah, if I'm around the table, if I'm on that ballot paper, you're going to talk about domestic abuse if it's a problem in, in this area. You are going to do that because I'm there to make sure um, that's inserted into the conversation. So yeah, it's it's similar in a meeting, you know, you can... It might be uncomfortable for some of the people who aren't used to uh, what you want to introduce into the into the conversation, but you you make those tiny little changes and then add that up, it starts to kind of uh, accumulate into I think quite a powerful effect. Did you know from the, the the very beginning that that was a power you had, or was that something you learned? Go like. It seems like you redefined success in some ways for a political party, right? It wasn't just seats in parliament. It was also, let's change culture. Let's change, let's destigmatize certain things. Let's and change the discourse, 100%. Was that the intention going in? Or was that something that you discovered was part of your power? It was certainly the intention when the party was founded. The founders were very clear that that was a way they could make a meaningful contribution that would serve women and therefore serve everyone um, by kind of like, leveraging that effect. It is like what UKIP did, except I would argue UKIP did it in a harmful way. They changed the discourse around immigration, right? We are now, we've now lurched to the right. Even, you know, both the major parties now have quite a right-wing approach to dealing with immigration, and we've got UKIP to thank for that. We're trying to drag the political discourse into a space where talking about equality between men and women and, you know, an intersectional approach to equality as well is much more normalized. So yes, that was deliberate. But in terms of me personally, um, you know, I think it, they say, don't they, that the uh, personal is political and vice versa. 
I realized that um, discourse, engaging with people can have very powerful effects. The example is my grandmother. She was 104 when she died, my white grandmother on my father's side, 104 when she died. But in 1977 or 76, when my father wrote home to say he was marrying a black woman, um, she freaked out. She was just like, she wrote him these very solemn letters saying swans and blackbirds don't get together and here's why and it never ends well. I think she was ashamed um, of her son. I think a bit like the whole Meghan Markle, Prince Harry thing, worried about what funny looking children they might have and how dark skinned they would be. All of that, all of that, all of that. Um, and growing up, I developed a quite a close relationship though with my grandmother and over time, she shifted, you know, her perspective, her point of view, her ideas about the world, her racism dissolved away. And that was, I realized that, and I became, I was really close to her uh, through my teenage years and in my young adulthood as well. And I realized how powerful it is when you um, can and do engage people, expose them to different perspectives. And I always say this to people as well, like, um, when they want to go into their bunkers and their purity spirals, because it's more comfortable there for, for all sorts of reasons, except it fuels polarization, it's damaging for all of us. But I always say, like, if you don't believe that people can change, people, institutions, culture, if you don't believe people can change, why are you an activist? What would be the point of the, the project of the Women's Equality Party if I thought some of these, you know, white men with their privilege and, and, and status if I thought it was impossible for that to shift and change, then honestly, I might as well give up. And so for me, I do believe that engaging with issues, putting your point of view across, showing your humanity to other people has immense power. But in this age of polarization, nobody wants to see somebody who's different from them from the perspective of their humanity. We like to demonize people. And we a lot of us fall into that trap. And I think it is a real barrier to progress. Um, but my personal experience, the political projects that I now lead has at its heart this idea of change happens and it happens through engagement, even if that's uncomfortable. So, yeah. You get to rewrite the rules? Yes. What are the rules you're rewriting? Like, how are you doing that? Oh my goodness, there's so many rules. Was there something that you came in and you were like, this is the one thing that I want to make sure we do differently? Yeah, I, well, the, there's a number of things. I think there are so many systems that conspire to uh, create and maintain an un the unequal world that we are um, usually um, on the wrong side of, right? And so we are, one of the sort of subversive things I suppose about us is this idea of, I've already sort of alluded to it, um, you start with the importance of equality. You start with an idea that um, women and especially women from marginalized backgrounds have a massively important contribution to make. So in a way you take, as Bell Hooks I think who said, those who are at the margins and you bring them to the center. And that creates a really different dynamic because politics in most countries um, is 
about a quite stubborn status quo, little bit of tinkering at the edges. Um, and that's, that just maintains systems that we know are oppressive, do a great deal of damage and actually inhibit all of our potential, all of our promise. And so, yeah, we, we decided that, um, the status quo is almost, we made a conscious decision that that was not going to be our starting point. And that manifests in how we campaign. It manifests in the policies we have. It manifests in um, some of the ways we've tried to, um, you know, do business. This might not sound like much, but we practice this thing called political polyamory, right? And what that means is you can be a member of our political party and a member of another political party. It might not sound like much, but when we um, launched, it freaked the political establishment out. It, they were totally perturbed by the idea of, no, these are our members, but you're saying you wouldn't mind if members of our party join. I'm like, yeah, it's about collaboration and it's about uh, allowing people to realize the, f the fullness, the plurality of who they are. You might be someone who's like, right, I am, um, I don't know, my father was a, grandfather was a trade unionist, so they're aligned to the Labour Party, but I wish they'd do more stuff on women. We're like, you don't have to leave. You don't have to abandon your allegiance, join us, and let's find ways to kind of cross-pollinate, you know? And that, as I say, might not sound like much, but it was very, very unsettling to the establishment here. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's just a sort of tangible example of how we've tried to disrupt political norms in order to create um, dynamics that over time will yield significant change to how politics is done and how people like us get to partake in it. I'm guessing that for something like the political polyamory, mm. it was something, at least for me as a person, like I imagine for the people, it yeah. made a lot of sense. But for the other parties, getting by probably was a lot harder. Yes. When you, when you went to them for other things as well, where they were like, well, you're not playing by the rules of the game. Yes. I mean, they don't know in a way what to do with us at, right. at some points, because one of the other things we do is um, uh, we in encourage people to plagiarize our manifesto. We're like, no, 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 please take our ideas. The very first general election we contested, we literally took a beautiful copy of our manifesto wrapped in a bow and delivered it to the headquarters of all the other parties. And we're like, you know what? Here are the ideas we want you to incorporate in your manifesto. We're not holding on to them. We're not being possessive about them. We believe firmly that these things would change the world. We believe firmly that these things would accelerate progress towards equality between men and women. Take them. They are yours. That blew their minds. What do you mean? Like, we're supposed to be at loggerheads. We're supposed to be um, guarding uh, ferociously our ideas. We're like, take our ideas, please. Nothing would make us happier. Because we are, this is how I'm not, we're not like Airbnb. Um, we are trying to do ourselves out of business. And that is really subversive. What? A political party that isn't chasing after power and then wanting to hold on to it in perpetuity? We're like, if you can get this stuff right, then we are not needed anymore. I always say I can go and lie on the beach in Barbados and be done. Um, and so, that, again, it might not sound like much, but it's very, very subversive. And the status quo finds it hard to comprehend the fact that that is our approach. 
I mean, it's it's not surprising pushing against the status quo, whether you're doing it institutionally or individually. It's like constant, constant struggle. And something that we think a lot about is to remain engaged politically. We have lots of young people in our community who, yeah. who care deeply, right? It's also their future. Yes. Life, so they care deeply. And it's really hard to remain engaged when it feels like everything is just so bleak. Yeah. I'm being honest, it's it's hard, right? It's hard to keep showing up to to say, I'm going to be an activist and I'm going to go out and protest. I'm going to vote. I'm going to campaign. Whatever it is, I'm going to change my community when you're living and then you're seeing everywhere around you the conversation, which is just, it's not a fun conversation. Things are hard right now. Yeah. And I'm curious about how you as an individual, because you are an individual, right? Sure. Like you as an individual, how do you remain engaged and hopeful? Because... Again, the personal comes back into play here. Remember what I said about where I grew up? Literally through the um, mid-80s to the mid-90s, I was in Southern Africa and I saw apartheid fall. Look, South Africa ain't perfect now. In fact, it's a mess by um, many accounts. And it's an example of what happens when the change isn't substantive enough when it isn't systemic enough, but it was a huge deal to overturn white minority rule after all that time. And I saw it happen. And um, so many examples, imagine somebody in the you know deep South in the United States, um, let's say 50 or even 100 years before slavery ended, they would never have believed that it was possible to overturn that oppressive system. They'd have been going to work in the fields every day thinking, this, I can't see how this can change. Might be able to curry favor with the master and get a more favorable position, but that is the best I can hope for. Look what's happening around me. Look at, um, look at how our children get taken away. Look at how um, uh, my colleagues are beaten and, and all of that. And, and so it's very easy, I think, when you're in the midst of things being bleak and difficult to, it's, I mean, it's, I should say it's very hard to see beyond that. But I think I do have, the, I, I'm so grateful in a way to have witnessed the overturn, the profound change that uh, flowed from the end of apartheid, which looked rock solid. And so for me, I always try, and I do sometimes um, feel worn out and feel weary, um, but, throughout history, there is example after example of profound change happening against the odds. And we've got to hold on to that. And the power holders, they want us to feel powerless. Our despondency serves them. Our despondency, um, when it starts to take hold, is a real powerful agent of the status quo. And also this idea like change isn't really linear. We do have a problem in the culture that we inhabit now because we're like very, you know, we've, it's like an Amazon Prime culture, right? We, we're very like conditioned to expect or want things instantly at the drop of a hat. That serves the status quo too. If we think like that, it's much easier to kind of like keep us in our place. But if we can... Um, have a long view and learn to look after each other um, with this knowing and understanding that the type of change we deserve and we will get if we stick with it 
happens um, on a much like longer time frame and there's a back and forth to it. Um, I think, you know, I think we've got to hold on to that energy as much as our brilliant ideas and our values. It is also this sense of um, persistence, even when you're running out of steam and persistence, you can maintain your persistence, as I say, by looking after each other. You know, you don't always have to be on your best game. You're allowed to have downtime. In fact, you're going to need the downtime to be able to stay with it for the time frames it's going to take to yield the change we all want to see. It's, it sounds like it's, it's hard. It's hard because it's hard for us to know that things are moving in the right direction or moving fast enough or moving in general, right? Because we're, we're in the, the long process of change and it's then how do we get through the day to day? And you're saying take care of each other and rest. And I'm curious what that looks like for you. I am so bad at that. I'm learning. I'm learning slowly. Um, partly because I've had to, I found myself getting overwhelmed and um, running out of steam at, after periods of very like intense campaigning or activity or backlash. Um, you know what? I don't, I probably need to, I, I, I need somebody to give me some guidance about how to optimize my ability to do that. It's, it is really difficult um, as because of how fast paced our society is. Um, it's easy to fall into the trap and I, I'm, I'm unlearning it, but like I say, it's a slow process. It's easy to fall into the trap of feeling like if I'm not on my best game all the time, if I'm not keep keeping pace with everything that's unfolding, even if things are unfolding really rapidly, that I'm somehow failing. You are not. You are succeeding. And I've, I have to tell myself it. I don't always believe myself, but I, I try to tell myself it. You are succeeding when you allow yourself opportunities to replenish. You are succeeding when you um, make time and space for the other things that um, are important about being a human being and feeling good in the day to day. Um, and as women, I think we are particularly um, conditioned to feel like it's our responsibility to take care of everyone and everything and actually taking care of ourselves. And that, it, it might mean like, I don't know, candles and a bubble bath, but it also might mean just um, switching your phone off, or it might mean going out for a glass of wine with your friend, whatever. Um, it might mean saying no. And I think as women saying no is quite a subversive thing that we've been conditioned not to be comfortable doing. So I, that's one specific point I have learnt to get a whole lot better at saying no. And number two, asking for help. And number three, this one's difficult. I'm, I'm like kindergarten level on this one, but, um, and you should ask yourself if you're any good at this. I don't know if you are actually verbalizing, articulating what I need. Sometimes I don't even know, you know, and sometimes when I do know forming the words is so difficult to do. But I think if you can do those three things, you got a chance of like setting yourself up to stay with the long game. And this is a long game. And the last thing to say though is that backlash that we often find ourselves on the receiving end of, it is a sign that we are winning. This thing of things feel really bleak. Um, often it's a backlash, right? From those in power 
um, in response. It is a response to our success. When um, the Me Too movement uh, kind of went viral and then what we saw was a resurgence in um, what MRAs, male rights campaigners, the backlash, some of the narratives you saw in some of the more right-wing press, has feminism gone too far? That stuff's really, it, it, it's dismaying sometimes to see that stuff emerge, but it is a sign that we are winning because they, it means they can't ignore and they're having to respond and react. Yes, it's hard being in the firing line, but when you, when you open yourself to the possibility that you are powerful and you start to see some of the things going on in the world as a response to your power, it's a signal that you're doing well. And so it's just sometimes flipping these things. It's such an interesting way of flipping it. It makes a lot of sense. And also, like, I think about, like, a 21-year-old who posts something on TikTok and gets a lot of, like, anger and response, right? And to know that it isn't about her saying anything. It's about... You touched a nerve. You'd be completely ignored if you weren't making any progress at all, I think. Power holders get desperate and freak out when it looks like their power is being challenged and undermined and they lash out. I'm not saying it's nice being on the receiving end of it, but it is a sign that you're having an impact and you're gaining traction. And seeing it that way can sort of just change the frame, you know, and, and help you relate to those experiences and those moments in, in a better way. Do you think it's a necessary part of the process of change making? The the, back, the moments of backlash or the period of backlash? I don't think it's necessary, well, but I think it's almost inherent. inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Inevitable, yeah, I do. I do. I do think so. Through history, that's what happened. You think of any example, whether it's, I don't know, the struggle for liberation from the British in India. Like, they really kicked off and got their weapons out and created more mayhem before... Um, the real fruits of all of that liberation campaigning took hold. I mean, in the US, they had a war to try and avoid um, uh, ending slavery. In South Africa, they became more brutal just in the period before they were about to give up and give in. Yeah. Like there's, there's, I can't think of any example where a revolution or a movement for change has achieved success without just towards the end um, stimulating the backlash that is familiar to so many. The series is called Little Revolutions, right? It's about the tiny things that we can all do in our own lives to make the changes that, that can make our lives better, our communities better, our families, our workplaces, our schools, or just the conversation around us. And for anyone who is in a position where they feel like they're the only one in the room or they have to work twice as hard to, to get taken seriously or that their voice doesn't matter, what, what little revolutions can they make, right? Like, what would you say are tiny things people can do in their own lives? Share food with each other. Um, you asked me a bit about how I kind of like unwind and cope and what's, I don't have like a hardcore self-care regime, but cooking and eating with other people is one of the ways I draw most pleasure. It's one of the things that grounds me. And... Something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is how we're all interconnected. But those of us who are marginalized in a way sometimes find ourselves at loggerheads with each other, right? And there's this, um, there's something from West African folklore where they, they, they invoke this image of Siamese, like Siamese twins, crocodiles, right? Who um, share the same stomach, 
yet they fight over food. Okay, so if we can find ways to do something really human, as simple as sharing a meal with somebody, like you might have, this might seem crazy to you, you might be like, you might like have a disagreement with somebody in the office here. Um, you know what? If you want to like try and like patch over that, why don't you like bring something, bring some food in that you can share with that person? It's much more difficult for them to maintain or hold their grudge if you do that. Might be a slightly awkward meal you have together, um, but it isn't only for those moments of conflict. I think sharing food um, gives us solidarity and comfort and all those positive things. You don't only have to use it as a conflict resolution tool, but it's one of those very versatile things that in our British culture here is not as normalized as it is in other parts of the world. So. I don't know if that's the kind of answer you expected. I think that is a small revolution. In this polarized world, where there's so many things that are driving us apart, if you can find ways to share food either to support people or share food with your adversaries, I think you can make these small but quite radical shifts in how we relate to one another. And I think that's so powerful. Sharing food is like sharing, like a very like, tangible way of like our shared humanity right like yeah all to eat and someone's gonna have a food allergy and someone else is not gonna like something and yeah find a way to make a meal together exactly yeah rather than Lovely. rather than fighting over scarcity or scarce yeah. resources let's share it exactly thank you it's Everything all right I should have asked you that I didn't. no it was very I, I well, didn't know what to expect from the conversation so it was a very wide-reaching wide-ranging conversation Thank you for listening and thank you to Mandu for this incredible conversation. Check out our show notes for how to follow Mandu and the Women's Equality Party. This episode was brought to you by Frida. Our producers are Claire Richardson and Abisoye Adelusi, and I'm your host, Masuma Ahuja. Please don't forget to follow Little Revolutions wherever you listen to podcasts and to leave us a review. It really helps. 